Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Take out your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter four. We're gonna wrap up and I'm gonna call this sermon the same name as the sermon series. It's called Running from the Heart of God. And so let's go ahead and pray as we open God's word together. Father, we do thank you today. And first, we thank you for our country. We thank you for the United States of America. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have been given. Many lives sacrificed, many things that have happened in order to get us to the point that we are today. And so God, we pray over our country in Jesus' name. We pray for revival for America. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit over this land. We pray that you would bring healing, Lord. We ask for signs, wonders, and miracles to accompany the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, now as we look to the book of Jonah for instruction and encouragement, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon our lives. I pray that you would bless and strengthen every person that is watching this, that is listening, that is participating. I pray that you would strengthen the families of Northwest Church, unify us together, that we would be one people moving together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We bless your holy name and we thank you for what you're gonna do in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's church said, amen, amen. Well, as we've been walking through the book of Jonah and we're bringing this study to a close, what we realize is the book of Jonah is without a doubt one of the most profound books of the Bible that we could be reading. And part of the reason that I say that is because not only are we reading about a prophet who's bringing a message to a city that's in need of, in deep need of repentance and revival and restoration, a pagan city nonetheless. Not only are we reading about somebody giving a message, but we're also reading about how God is trying to profoundly touch the heart of his prophet. And so there are two things that are going on at the same time. This is brilliant literature, but it's far more than that. And we see in this story so much that parallels what we know to be true in the New Testament. For those of us that understand the cross and the resurrection of Christ, we understand that the just was given for those that were unjust. We understand that the righteous was given for the unrighteous Knowing that as we read the scriptures and we see that God is trying to reach his prophet's heart and not just put something in his hands, we can see how powerful and profound that this book really is. Now, of all the prophetic books in the Bible, both major and minor prophets, we see that this book is set apart and has something very special. And I want to give you a review. As we went through Jonah chapter one, we saw that God called Jonah to bring a divine word of judgment to the city of Nineveh. He actually said, go and preach against the great city of Nineveh. And what did he do? We know that Jonah ran and he got into a boat and he went as far away as he possibly could. But it doesn't end there in chapter one. What we read about from that point is God sends a great storm against the ship. And all of the sailors, including Jonah, who's on the boat, he's actually in the bow of the boat asleep. They're about to lose their lives, and the sailors wake Jonah up because they're up on the, on the ship's deck, and they're trying to worship their gods and pray and placate their own gods, and obviously no pagan god is listening, no pagan god is real, and so they have no clue why this storm is happening. They wake Jonah up, and they tell him to call on his god. They end up casting lots. They find out that the reason the storm is happening is because of Jonah. And they ask him, why have you done this to us? Why have you overlooked what your God has called you to do, asked you to do, and so much so that you would be willing for our lives to be lost? Why would you do such a thing? And so Jonah takes a first step towards repentance at the end of chapter one, and he says, throw me over the boat. They don't want to do it because they're acting more noble than he is, but they end up complying. So they all throw Jonah over the side of the boat. And the Bible says, as he touches the water, the sea, the storm subsides. 
Jonah is sinking into the sea, and God, in chapter 2, he appoints a fish to swallow him up. And in chapter 2, we see prayer and repentance. I had a message called Refinement in Confinement, and I believe that this was a confining season, really a strange chapter of all the scripture where God had him in the belly of a large fish, and he was dealing with his heart. Jonah, has, he responds in repentance. He looks to the Lord. There are great things that happen. We talked about that. The, the fish spits him out onto dry land in chapter 3. And as we looked at chapter 3, we talked about how his repentance restored him to a willingness to obey God again. And this is where I talk to you out of a message called A Message and a Messenger and how God wants to use our lives, but first he wants to do something in us so that he can speak through us. A phrase that I use quite often is that it's not just about the name of God or the name of Jesus on our lips, but it's the nature of Jesus in our hearts. And haven't we seen how God is going to great lengths to get his message into his prophet's heart and not just out of his mouth? That's the profoundness of this book. So in chapter three, Jonah walks through the city of Nineveh, obeying God. He's in obedience to God at that point. And he gives a sermon that's five Hebrew words, 40 days and the city will be overthrown or overturned, some translations say. And that's an interesting word, that overturned or overthrown. It can have a lot of different meanings, and I'll come back to that probably later on in this message. But nonetheless, he goes to the cities one day in, just walking throughout the city, sharing this, and from the king on down to the cattle, the Bible says that they repent and in dust and ashes. And so here they have ashes all over them. They even all over the all over the animals, they don't let anybody eat or drink whatsoever because they, they say to themselves, well, maybe this God will turn from the calamity that he swears he will bring upon us if we repent. They basically say, the king says, who knows? Maybe God will relent. And what we see happen at the end of chapter three is God, in fact, does relent. He sees the repentance from the people of Nineveh, from the king all the way down and he relents from bringing any judgment upon them. And we're going to read about Jonah's response as a result of that. But what I want to do is make sure that I remind you of God's response to their repentance by starting in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, and then we'll read all of Jonah chapter 4. Here's what it says. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity with which he declared he would bring upon them. He did not do it, verse one, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I, what I said while I was still in my own country? He's referring back to chapter one. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond. Jonah went out from the city, and he sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. And he said, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? And this is a question that God asked Jonah, 
and the book of Jonah ends. <laughs> this, is, this is the most profound ending of any book of the Bible. You would think that there would be more, and yet there is not. It just ends with God questioning Jonah. Now, here's the deal. I've already told you this is such a profound book, and this makes it even more profound to me. Here we have four chapters. We have 48 verses. We have 1,300 words. You can read the entire book in just 15 minutes, and yet it is so profound, and it is far deeper than most people realize. And you know how we know that? Most children's stories don't even tell about chapter four. They talk about this rebellious prophet who doesn't do what God tells him to do. He goes into the boat. He falls asleep. This great storm comes. It's his fault. They throw him over. He gets swallowed by this big fish. He has this great time in the big fish. You know, you've seen VeggieTales. And he's in the fish. He gets vomited up on dry land. And then he goes to the city and he leads a revival in the city as this obedient prophet. Everybody wins. Everybody's happy. That's like the children's story of the book of Jonah. But chapter four is usually not referenced and chapter four is actually the climax, and it's the purpose, and it's the point of the entire book. And this is what I believe we're going to see today, and it's not typical that people usually understand chapter four. In fact, whenever the book of Jonah is referenced, this is not the chapter that is usually talked about, and yet it is the chapter that is the most important because it brings home the meaning and the purpose for which all God was seeking to do. And so here we're going to jump into it, and I just want to use a few points as a filter for conversational pieces that I want to bring to you today. I think some of these things are just profound and they're important, and that's the reason why it stops with a question, because the question really is going to be offered to each one of us today as well, and it should be as we consider what the Lord is doing in Jonah and in us. The first thing I want to talk to you about as we're reading this chapter is Jonah was angry with God. In verse 10 of chapter 3, we see God does not bring about the destruction for the people of Nineveh because of their repentance. And Jonah's response to that in chapter 4 and verse 1 is he was very angry. Now, at first glance, we see that Jonah was angry because of the outcome, because he expected something else to happen. But he wasn't just angry at the outcome. Jonah was angry at God. He definitely blamed God. He knew that God could have done something different, and he believes that God should have done something different. So he's not merely angry that things didn't work out the way he thought they should, wanted them to. He's angry that God is the way that he is. And that really is something that we need to stop and reflect on. The fact is that all of us, cannot relate to Jonah necessarily in a specific way, but we can all relate to Jonah, generally speaking, because we live in a world of injustice. And deep down, we want mercy for ourselves and we want justice for everything else and everyone else. That's the truth. That really is the human nature. I want mercy for me in my injustice, but I want justice and not mercy for others in their wrongdoing. That's the way of the human nature, and we all can understand that. And this is especially true when something horrible happens to us, whether it's a loved one or ourselves, or maybe it's something that's important to us, and we see a profound injustice in the world. And when that happens, we get angry, we get upset, we have a visceral reaction. We're living in a time right now where we see that in an ongoing and regular way, and we're just throwing our opinions in and we're taking sides and we're taking up the talking points of one side or the other, we tend to take a stand. And something that we learn as we read scripture, as we consider that Jesus is Lord, is that taking a stand isn't always appropriate. Certainly we want to stand for justice, but what we find in the book of Jonah and what we see in the story of Jesus Christ, this profoundly affected each one of us, is that God doesn't do what's fair in human terms. He gives grace and he gives mercy because that is such a higher principle in the character that he has revealed to us. And he doesn't merely want us to be people that receive of his character. He wants us to be people that are transformed by it and distributors of his own character. He wants us to reflect him not just in image, like we're image bearers, but he wants us to reflect his nature. 
He wants us to be a reflection of his ways in the world that we live in. And so it totally makes sense why God is going after Jonah, why God is, is just aggressive in his prophet understanding not only that God is this way, but that he wants Jonah to be this way as well. Jonah's angry. Jonah is fighting, not his understanding of how God is, but wanting to participate in any way whatsoever in the ways of the Lord. And when you look at the story of Jonah, you know, you see great repentance and revival. In fact, we see a revival that happens among 120,000 people in a, in a large city, and it happens in a day. I mean, that's what we pray for. That's what we desire. That's what we long for, is that we would see this kind of revival, is that one message, even a little piece of a message could be shared, and we see tens of thousands of people come to God, humble themselves before God. It's what we see on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. We see that when Peter preaches his first sermon after he's baptized with the Holy Spirit, it says 3,000 people come to Christ. They end up having to baptize 3,000 people. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, that is revival. Thousands of people are responding to the message of the gospel in just one message. And so we long for that. We want that. Jonah actually gets to see that. He preaches a message. All these people respond. But listen, he is not excited about it at all. In fact, he is angry that God would relent from the calamity or the destruction, the judgment that he was going to bring on the people of this city. And for us who are far removed from the trauma and the pain that's caused by the Assyrians, maybe we look at this story and we think that Jonah being angry or being upset or processing his emotions, maybe we think that that's crazy and we can easily judge him. But if, what if we were the ones that had our families killed? What if we were the ones that had our homes taken, had our land taken? What if that was our story? And then God said to us, I want to send you to the very people that for generation after generation have taken all of this from you, have done all of this to you. I don't just want you to live at diff in different places. I actually want you to go across the, this region and I want you to preach to them. And Jonah in his mind and his heart, he knows that God might do what God ends up doing. He hopes it's not the case, but he knows that. And that's what is reflected in these passages. And so for us, maybe we're so disconnected from, from the feeling of this, from the reality of this, that we can easily judge Jonah. But, but I, I actually appreciate the honesty of the text. I appreciate that we see that Jonah was angry at God. He was angry at God's character. And so we want to enter into the story as it is, not just merely as an observer. We want to get as much feeling out of this as we possibly, as we possibly can. Jonah was angry because God was merciful to his enemies, but it was more than that. Jonah was actually angry that God was this way, and he was disconnected from how the character of God had benefited him. And that happens to us as well. He was angry that God was this way to his enemies. But listen, the only way that that can happen in totality is that you disconnect the ways and the character of God from how it benefits you. And that's how you get to be where Jonah was. You stop thinking about how you needed that same mercy and you start thinking about how other people don't deserve it. See, you did, I did deserve it, and other people don't. When we get into that rut, it's very difficult to get our way out. It's very difficult to see that we're there. We become blind, right? We become entitled to the grace of God and forgetting that the reality of grace, the word grace is unmerited favor, that we've received something from God we did not deserve and we cannot earn. And when we disconnect ourselves from an understanding of God's grace and that it's something he did for us we could not do for ourselves, when we disconnect from that, then we become as judgmental as everyone or anyone else. And that's really what we get to see into. But listen, if we talk about ang being angry at God for a moment, there's a few reasons that I found that people get angry with God, just to, just to kind of help us out a little bit. And the first reason that we get angry at God, it's theological. We have an issue with who God is, and so justice for all, but not for me. We have this issue where we think, 
justice for me, but not for everyone, right? So it's, it's just a theological concept that shows that we're at the center and we want something. We want to be recipients. We want to receive from what God has done, but we're not interested in other people receiving it. So our theology is as small as us. So we have a theological issue. And when we find that God is this way overall and God is this way for all, we want mercy for me, but not for all. We want justice for me, but we don't want justice for all. We have this theological issue because we're gonna walk about life and we're gonna get offended. We're gonna get sinned against. We're gonna have traumatic experiences. We're gonna be wounded deeply, some people more than others. Maybe you're watching and you're saying, Pastor Ben, you don't understand what I've been through. And you're right. I may not ever understand what, you, what you've been through. But see, this is why theology has to go beyond our own personal experience. Theology, understanding who God is and what God is like, means that we understand he's like this for everyone. Means that if we're gonna receive grace for the wrong that we've done, then we've got to understand that God is also pursuing others, even those that have done horrible and wrong things to us or to others, he's pursuing them with grace to transform their hearts so they can receive just like we have. And so we may not be happy about that at first. We may be confused and conflicted, and that may cause us anger at God. We may just be in that place, and God will continue to disciple us. He will pursue us just like he pursued Jonah in this experience that we read about. The second reason I see people get angry with God is because they've personally been wounded, which is piggybacking on what I just said. It's a theological issue, but sometimes it really never gets theological because a person just can't see past their own wounding. And we've been sinned against, especially as it relates to painful moments like abuse or trauma or some kind of serious difficulty. And the idea is that God is either directly responsible for what happened, why did you do this to me? Or God is indirectly responsible in that he could have prevented what happened to me. And so we put all of the responsibility on God and we forget, once again, the issue of free will. I've talked about this before, but right now we have 7 billion people on the planet and God allows us to have a level of free will. Now, I believe in limited free will. What that means is, is that I didn't choose the color of my skin or who my parents were or what country I was gonna grow up in. There, there are a lot of things that I did not choose. But what is true is that as a free will moral agent, when I come of age, I have choices. Now, people debate nature or nurture, but the reality is, is that we are born with a sinful nature. And that's what the scriptures teach. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says that we were born. It's, we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. And we are in need of redemption. We're in need of a savior. And so we have 7 billion people on the planet making sinful decisions. And it's this big spider web that's affecting everybody. And of course, we know that, but when something happens to us, we forget that this is what God did in giving each person free will so that ultimately we could choose whether or not we're going to receive the grace of God and we're going to walk with God in such a way to be his son or his daughter. Now that's, God pursues everyone. He does not wish that any would, be, would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. The Bible says very clearly in John 3, 16, that whosoever believes will not perish, but, all, but will come to everlasting life. So God's heart is very clear in scripture. He wants us back. He sent his son, Jesus. Jesus willingly died on our behalf so that we could be restored back to right relationship. God did not leave us alone and become passive. He sent Jesus right into the mess. And Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only one that can restore us back into relationship. In the meantime, we're going to suffer at the hands of one another. And certainly we can, we can look at other people's decisions and the sin that they've done against us. And we can say that maybe what we have done does not compare and we can sort of live our life in, in saying that other people have sinned against me and I'm justified in my anger towards them and, and I'm justified in my anger towards God because this should have never happened. But the reality is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, listen, if somebody's walking through trauma and I'm a first responder or maybe I'm walking through some issue with a person through counseling, I'm not gonna just give them the theological answer right then and there. You just walk somebody through the pain of their emotional experience. 
But ultimately, in order to get through the pain, we have to understand that there is a greater purpose and there is something more profound, bigger than we can understand going on in the background. That this is, this mess that we have is because of what we have done. But this beauty that we can have in salvation is because of what God has done. And so we look not just to what we have suffered in this life, we looked unto Jesus for what he is offering us both now and in the next, that we can have clean hearts, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can have eternal life. That's why Jesus had to die. And we understand that. But sometimes when we walk through very difficult situations, we go, God, you could have prevented that. You could have done something about that and you chose not to. Well, the problem is, is we go all the way back to the choice that we read about in Genesis chapter one, two, and three, where God chose to give us choices. And in our choices, we've sinned and we've rebelled and it's affecting everyone all of the time. Now, I don't have more time to get into that in generational iniquity and how it affects all of us, but we all know this to be the case. And until we really come to understand that it's hard for us to forgive and to reconcile with those that have sinned against us. But when the grace and the mercy of God comes to us, it profoundly impacts us in such a way where our heart opens up and we can then give away to others what God has given to us. We don't want to stay in a place of anger towards God because it's a misunderstanding of what God has given us in free will to begin with. But that really can be a place where we get stuck Number three is we can get angry with God when we've been disappointed. This is where you've sought God and he doesn't do what you think he should. Or maybe you read scripture where God's a healer and you've been praying because you have something wrong with you, physically speaking, or maybe even emotionally speaking. And you've prayed and you've fasted and you've sought God and nothing has happened. And so you're angry with God because he should have done what the Bible says he will do. And this is the conflict that we live in, the conundrum of the now in his kingdom and the not yet of what is coming. And we live in this dispensation of grace where we do experience healing and we do experience the grace and the kindness and the love of God manifested towards us through the Holy Spirit. We do experience all of that, but there are times where as we contend, we contend till the end. And we don't receive our healing until we meet Jesus face to face where we receive a new glorified body. And that's what we look forward to is not just what we get in this life, but what we receive in all that life is in eternity. And as it unfolds, well, maybe you were in a marriage and it didn't work out. Maybe you were in a family and it was traumatic. Maybe you were in a relationship and something didn't go the way that you thought it was supposed to go. It could be a job. It could be anything. And really, I'm not here to tell you that that, that this is worse than others. We all have an impact with the disappointments in our lives. I mean, we all have experienced difficulty and pain and trauma and turmoil, and it hits us differently. And so I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to say I've watched people, and I've even had feelings of anger or misappropriated anger towards God. And I can honestly say anytime I felt that, I just automatically pushed that off. Lord, you didn't do this to me. You aren't the one that's responsible for this. And we must understand that God is not responsible for the pain in our lives, for the difficulty in our lives. But we can learn from this issue of Jonah being angry with God. And we can see also in this that God is so patient with Jonah. And one of the things that we can become more thankful for is the patience of God towards us. When I ask people, what are you thankful for when you think of the Lord? They usually say the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. But I like to use the word patience because God has been patient with me. In my process, in my understanding, in my development, God has been so patient. In my just not being fully sanctified, God has been patient with me and he has been patient of you. And he wants to give us a new way of thinking that God is not the author of confusion. And God is not the author of problems and pain. God is the author of our solutions. And he is helping us come to a new understanding. And all of these experiences that we have in life, as we read about in the book of Jonah, they are discipling us so that we can have renewed thinking and right thinking about God. And we see that Jonah's anger with God leads him to a debate with God. 
So Jonah debates with the Lord. And we see that here starting in verse two. And this is what it says. It says, he prayed to the Lord and he said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. I just want to mention this. This just sounds so over-emotionalized. The brilliance of this literature to me is that it impacts your emotions. I don't know if you see that or not, but it's just like, you just see Jonah as this figure that is so emotional in this moment, moment that it's really honest and vulnerable. And I think it's important when we read that in the scripture that we pause and we just take notice of that, that the author of scripture, inspired of the Holy Spirit, allows us this window into emotion, which we all understand and experience. But let's be honest, we know that this is not a prayer. This is more of a complaint of Jonah rather than a prayer. And it's an indictment of God's character, implying that God's not acting the way that he should. He didn't do what he should have done. And obviously, that's where we play God. And Jonah's debating with God. I know the way it should have been. And you're this way, and you should be this way. It's where we're playing God. We're telling God that we know how it's supposed to go. No, we're not in charge of planets and solar systems and 7 billion people, but we know what God should have done. And this is what happens. We get caught into this trap and Jonah now starts to debate with the Lord. And while I appreciate the honesty, I know that it's important that we even look at some of the things that he said. So look at what he says in verse two. He basically tells the Lord, remember what I said? Remember what I said to you? Apparently, Jonah, we haven't read this in chapter one, but he lectured the Lord. He must have told the Lord when God called him to go preach against the great city of Nineveh, he must have said to God, I'm not gonna go, I shouldn't go. And this is why he, he gave God a plea to not go and the Lord still called him to go and that's when he ran. So it gives us a little insight into Jonah's running off and fleeing from the presence of the Lord as though he could. But it shows us that he actually did tried to negotiate with God. He tried to lecture the Lord. Jonah informed God probably that Nineveh deserved judgment and he was the wrong man for the job. See, he thought that if I go, God's gonna be God and I don't wanna, part I don't wanna participate in that. Jonah wanted God to conform to his wishes, not vice versa. And, and let me just remind you as I'm sharing with you these things that Jonah uses as sort of his debate and his lecture to God is that he's trying to manipulate the Lord right now. And we know that because we read about it in verse four through six. He's actually still trying to change God's mind. He sees that Nineveh has repented. He sees that God is not gonna bring this calamity. He knows it's gonna happen. And so now he's saying things to the Lord to hopefully change his mind. And we'll read why I believe that in here just a moment. Jonah is clearly in disagreement with the character of God and the actions that flow from his character. And that's why he says, you know, I remember what I said to you. And then he goes also in verse two to saying this, remember why I fled. Remember what I said and remember why I fled. When God refused Jonah's request, the prophet took matters into his own hands and he decided to thwart God's plan as though he could by refusing to participate. Go back to chapter one. Here, Jonah, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And in my mind, I think that maybe Jonah thought, well, if I just run, then God doesn't have his man to go do his bidding. And then the Ninevites will just receive their just judgment. And maybe that's what Jonah was thinking when he fled, that if I run, then God's either gonna have to use someone else or this won't happen at all because I want them to fry and I want them to die. God, that's why I fled. That's why I ran because this was not supposed to happen. And God just seems to not really listen to Jonah's plea, right? He didn't listen to him in chapter one and he's not gonna listen to him here either. The third thing we see that Jonah says here in verse two, he said, I knew you would do this because I know what you're like. I know how you are. I know you're merciful to the guilty. I know that you're compassionate to the weak and to those that don't deserve it. I know you're slow to become angry in the face of egregious sin. I know you're rich in faithful love on those that are unlovely and should not be loved. I know that you're willing to relent from sending judgment 
on those that repent. I know all of these things about you and I knew you were gonna do this and I did not wanna go. They're not worthy of it. They don't deserve it and they can't earn it. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like we're being thrust into the very thing that God is good at? Come on, that's what Jonah's saying. He's saying they didn't deserve it and they can't earn it and it's just a setup for not divine judgment, but for divine grace because of the only one that does something that nobody else does. God, Yahweh, and his son, Jesus Christ, this is the only one that does what we read about in scripture. That's what has benefited Jonah. That's what has changed Jonah's life. And Jonah is, is fundamentally disconnected from the benefit that he's received and how much more others that don't know what he knows or have what he has needed as well. So he goes, I know what you're like. I did not want to participate in that. And we stop right there because we realize this is why we know that God was not just trying to use his prophet to speak for him. He wanted to transform the heart of his prophet. And this is why we're calling this message running from the heart of God. Jonah would gladly deliver a word of judgment, but Jonah did not want to be like the one that he was speaking for. Isn't that a profound thing to realize? that Jonah ran from the heart of the God that he says that he serves. I wonder how relevant that is for us. I wonder if that doesn't just strike us in the heart, that we don't mind receiving, but man, I don't want to be like the one that I needed to receive grace from. I don't want to be gracious, but man, I need grace. I need grace in my life, but I want justice for everything else. I mean, that is just such a crazy thing that boggles the minds of everyone else. And that's what Paul knew, and it's what he taught in all of his letters. He would say things like, listen, this is not about eloquence of speech, but it's about this demonstration of the Spirit's power that he would preach this message, and it was foolishness to people. The message of the gospel was foolish that the righteous one would give his life for the unrighteous is foolish. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, because we develop a society of the haves and the have-nots, the good and the bad. The bad are deserving of punishment and the good are deserving of rewards, right? That's the community that we believe in. That's the society that we believe in, right? And there's really, after labels, there's really no margin. There's no space for change because once a liar, always a liar, Right? Once an immoral, always immoral. Once a violent person, always a violent person. Lock them up. Throw away the key. Label them. There's no return. And that is not how God sees it. Oh my gosh. And we see that through the glorious gospel of Jesus and all the teachings that Jesus gave us. And if we're honest about it, the teachings that gave all of us as followers of Jesus is profoundly offensive to our flesh. It is provocative as it gets. Yeah, it, it, it's nice in theory, the golden rule and loving your enemies and all that stuff. It sounds fine when you hear it, and it's okay to believe that God loves my enemies, but he isn't just stopping there. He wants me to love my enemies. So it's almost like, hey, it's okay if God does it, but God wants me to do it too? Is that what's really going on here? And that is what's going on here, and that's why Jonah is just so messed up the prophet refused to see the Assyrians as candidates for grace. He just refused. And so the, four, the fourth thing he says is, why don't you just kill me now? Verse three, maybe Jonah valued his own reputation more than God's. Maybe the prophet who brought a word of judgment, the prophet who brings a word of judgment rather than the vessel who brought the opportunity revival, maybe he wanted to be the prophet of judgment, but he wasn't interested in being the prophet of revival for the pagan nation. Maybe he was curious or wondering or worried about what his Jewish brethren would think of him if he were the one that brought the opportunity of repentance to the Assyrians. Maybe he wouldn't be welcomed back into his community. Maybe it would be better for him in his mind to die now and right here because if people know that I'm not just gonna take sides, 
If people know that I'm not just going to stand on this side with the good people who do the good things and command judgment or demand judgment on everyone else, maybe if I don't take that side, that somehow I take the Lord's side and it confuses my own people, maybe that means that my reputation is gone. But that's the thing, right? He's more concerned about his own reputation than he is about the Lord's. And he says out loud, I knew that you were this way. I knew that you were this way, but I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. I would prefer to be a man of the flesh. Let me, let me make a comment about this. This is so important, right? We think about this whole thing and it's like, it's easier to take sides. But here's the reality. If we say we really follow Jesus, sometimes the thing that he's going to ask us to do is completely counterintuitive and entirely offensive to the flesh. It is not about our reputation. It is about the glory of God. It is not about what people think about us. It is entirely about what God is calling us to do. There are times where God has asked me to do things that I have absolutely gotten judged for. I have had good, well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians say, why in the world would you go do something like that? And the reason I would go do something like that is not because I was participating in evil or wickedness of any kind. It was because God inspired my heart to go reach people that I didn't understand. God called me to go bring message and ministry to people and to places that I just did not understand. And he will do the same thing to us. But this is the deal. If our attitude is aligned with Jonah and we're on this side and we're here to take a stand because that's just the way that we are, then we're not available to be the prophetic voice that God's called us to be in the generation that we're a part of. See, there's a reason why sometimes we won't be useful to the Lord. It's because we have predecided what right and wrong actually is and how God uses people. But in the back of our minds, we know that God is above it all. And we know that God can call us to do things that doesn't make sense. And we know in the back of our minds that God can actually transform a murderer, the highest level of sinner. I can remember one time I was preaching. I was, I was in Georgia and I was down on this street. I was in this one area that, that they brought me to. It was a ministry that was for the people in this one area of, of Georgia and I'm preaching and I get down, not very many people were listening to me. It was not awesome. I get down and I get done preaching and I walk up to this guy and I start prophesying over his life and he just broke down. I mean, it was an amazing encounter. He broke down and I called this man out as a leader. I called him out as a pastor. I spoke to him. I spoke to him the word of the Lord that God put in my heart to give to him. And the guy that was running the ministry that had invited me to speak, he looks at me and he goes, you literally just called a murderer a pastor. That's literally what the guy said to me. And I said, well, isn't that what God does? And he goes, absolutely. That's why I'm here. And this is what we know. We know that God changes our lives. God changes our hearts. God changes our minds. He's done it for us and he's doing it for others. The question is, are we participating in the transformation of the community around us or are we just content being a recipient? This is what he's provoking Jonah with. And Jonah's like, it'd be better off if I died. Someone might argue here, but eventually Jonah did do as God asked him. Hey, Jonah did preach. Yeah, he, he, he repented. He submitted to God and the fish. But he had this pride and he had this prejudice of all, the, of, all of his flesh. And he wanted in that 40-day time, he wanted the city to be destroyed. And so although he aligned his heart to obey God, he did not align his heart to be like God. And that was the depth of which God was going. The last thing I want to share with you is the most important part. And here we read in this passage that God reasoned with Jonah. Jonah was angry with God. Jonah debated with God. But here we see God's heart and he's reasoning with Jonah. And that's what I believe he does with us as well. I think it's a profound picture of how God is continuing to disciple us and bring us deeper and deeper into his heart. That as often as we get it wrong, as, as many times as we sin and we simply just don't do what God calls us to, that the Lord will relentlessly go after us, pursue us to go deeper and deeper and deeper into this transformative work where we become more like him and look more like him. In verse four, God asks Jonah a question. He says, do you have a reason to be angry? And Jonah doesn't say anything at all. It says Jonah walks out of the city, avoids the question entirely, and sits down and tries to get some shade. That's what Jonah does. God's speaking to him. 
How many of us want God to speak to us? And God is speaking to us. He asks us a question. He's trying to get at something in our heart. Do you have a reason to be angry? Jonah just avoids it. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. He goes outside the city. He gets a comfortable seat because after he tried to manipulate the Lord, I think that he's looking out at the city and he's hoping that fire from heaven comes to consume them. He's hoping that they receive justice. He's hoping that they get what they deserve. Jonah's watching this scene and he's hoping that it plays out like a movie, some kind of movie clip where fire just consumes everyone and screams go up and he's got a smile on his face. That's what he's looking for. But see, God's not done. He's gonna continue to speak to him. He's gonna continue to pursue him. And we read in verse six that God causes this plant to grow up We don't know what kind of plant it is, but it provides shade, and it says that Jonah was really happy. Here's this angry guy that all of a sudden is happy because of this plant. In verse 7, God appoints this little worm to chew at the plant, and it says the plant withers. And I don't want to go too far into this, but I just was reading that, and I thought sometimes just the, the little thing can cause our happiness, our supposed happiness, our temporary happiness to fade, and we allow the little things to cause us to miss the big things. But this little worm chews at this plant and it withers and it dies. And then Jonah, he experiences the scorching wind and the heat and he screams out, I just wanna die. He proclaims it, just kill me, take my life. And God asks him this question again. Do you have a reason to be angry about the plant? Because clearly God couldn't talk to him just about the people, he had to show him something. He had to walk him through an experience. He says, do you have a reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yep. And listen to what God says in verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a reason to be angry about the plant? He says, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. The Lord said, you have compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. This terminology right here, when God says they don't know their right, their right hand from their left hand, it's not that they don't have any knowledge or they're not subject to some level of conscience. It's just that he's saying they're probably misguided. That's the terminology, the way the grammar is structured. He's saying, should I not care about people who potentially have been misguided and misunderstand who they're supposed to be? Because clearly, Jonah, you misunderstand who I want you to be and you're resisting it. Should I not care about everyone created in my image? And the, the book, it just stops right there. You can hear the echo of the question. This is who God is and this is what God is like. I was thinking about some kind of illustration, and I'm sure you're like me, but I watch movies, I like movies a lot, and I mean, good, wholesome movies, but there are always those movies where there's a bad guy or a gal and a good guy, and you have about 30 minutes where the bad guy's doing all this evil stuff, and then the good guy or group comes into the picture, and you just, in your heart, you, you're entertained and you're, you're jumped into this movie, and, and you're in it with them, and you're like, man, I want justice for, the, for whoever's been victimized, for whoever's been oppressed. I want justice for them and I want the, the bad person to get what they deserve and so the good person's gonna render that judgment and you just get sort of excited and whenever that judgment comes, no matter how bad it is on the bad people or the bad person, you're actually happy about it. Have you ever experienced that? Where you feel good that the bad person is judged because they deserve it? Yeah, I'm like you. I feel the same way. I love movies where justice comes to those that need justice, where judgment comes to those in the face of it. I'll be honest with you. I get into those movies. I like those movies. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that some the most inspirational stories are, are not necessarily where the bad people get what's coming to them. It's where the oppressed and it's where the victimized rise up and they act differently, otherly, than those that have oppressed them. And they show a dignity that isn't found in the bad and that judgment cannot render necessarily or make, it can't satisfy. 
It's where the oppressed rise up and they restore and they forgive. And it shows the character of someone and really ultimately God that is greater than all of this because ultimately that's what all of us were created for. You know the reason that we like the inspirational stories where the oppressed rise up against the oppressor and they actually forgive them? The reason that we like those stories, the reason that those stories bring us to tears, the reason that those are the best stories is because ultimately we were created for that level of goodness where evil doesn't exist like it does in this world. And this shows us that there's something more powerful than evil, and it's love. There's something more powerful than even violent judgment. It's forgiveness. And you know how we know that? Because that's what we've received in Jesus Christ. See, to not agree with what I just said is to not understand our necessity for the grace of God in our own lives. See, for us to not want it for others is to misunderstand that it's grace for all. That's what it's about. We cannot merely want grace for ourselves, but not for all. God's gonna call us to be people that are gonna bring grace to a people that didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, because you know what? That's all of us. And that's the conflict that Jonah faces. That's the conflict that we face. Jesus taught us to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus taught us to love our enemies And it was maybe fine if God were to love our enemies, but he's asking us to. And can I just say, that's going to cost our life. That's going to cost our life. This is why we understand we've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We're sons and we're daughters of God. And there's something in us that you cannot find in this world. There's something beautiful that's in us that overcomes all that is wrong in the world God wanted Jonah to get that. The cliffhanger of the whole story, the fact that there's no conclusion other than that God wanted his prophet to not merely speak for him, but he wanted his prophet to manifest his character and get why he would relent from bringing destruction against the city is that God is offering opportunities for us to say, yes, God is offering opportunities to repent. Will God bring judgment when it's necessary? Of course he will because there's no, there's no true love without judgment. Judgment is that last resort of a loving God. He must do that for the sake of all. But God is constantly pursuing, relentlessly pursuing us that we might respond to him. And listen, this is what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we know that is true of Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.